Well, last Sunday, Ray shared with us a little bit about John 12, where Mary and Bethany, Mary of Bethany, excuse me, anoints Jesus. Today, we're going to see another anointing of Jesus, but more importantly, a tale of two hearts. We're going to see how two people deal very differently with their sins. One repents and receives forgiveness and grace, while the other denies their sin and hardens their heart. So let's go into verse 36. 736. It says, Then one of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. So he gets invited to one of the religious leaders' homes, the Pharisee. Well, is Jesus finally making some headway with the religious leaders? Is he moving up in the world? Or is this another setup? Well, as we go further, we're going to see. As an aside, not all the religious leaders were were bad. As a matter of fact, when they went to try Jesus at night, which was illegal, there's no way they could have gotten a quorum of the the council, which was about 70 members. What they did was, it was like a kangaroo court, and it started at night, so that that people who were more fair-minded wouldn't be a part of it. Another thing is Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a religious leader who came to Jesus at night to learn more from the Messiah. Joseph of Arimathea, the Bible says he was a council member. He also gave Jesus his tomb to be buried in. Gamaliel, the uh, well-respected Pharisee who kind of cautioned the religious leaders not to go after the disciples because he said, what if it's something from God, then you're kicking against God. And then Saul, the Pharisee who became Paul later on, who wrote half of the New Testament. And also in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, is a one-liner in there, And it says that many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Pretty amazing. So um, these these guys weren't all bad. We just read about a select few of them that gave Jesus a hard time constantly. But the Greek word here translated for sat down, it says that Jesus sat down to eat. The word in the Greek is anaklino, which means actually to lean back and to recline. And we're going to see how that comes into play in verse 38. Verse 37, we're introduced to the first heart here in the story, in the tale of two hearts. Luke says, and behold, this is an important point that Luke wants us to focus on. As a matter of fact, it's key to the story. It's important to know that she was a grievous sinner. Everyone attests to that, including Jesus, as we'll see later in in, uh, verse 47. Even Jesus attests to that. He concedes to that. But going back to that era, they're saying without saying that she's a prostitute. I looked in the New Testament. The word prostitute doesn't show up. The only word that shows up is harlot, and we find that later in Revelation about the harlot that rides the beast. And also, um, you know, it's, the Bible talks about adultery, adulterer or adulteress. But it doesn't specifically say it, but this is what they're saying. Just to digress for a little bit, what would life be like for this woman in that society? Well, Number one, she'd be shunned by society except for the men that would use her. 
and trying to buy at the market or draw from the well would just give her more abuse from the townspeople. She would, she would be desensitized to sex, possibly never being able to enjoy what God has created for a husband and a wife. I've got to tell you, on a side note, and I could be totally off base here, but you see such a rise in the divorce rate. It's so, it's astonishing, even among Christians. But I think that, I think that also as you see the rise in the divorce rate, you see the rise in the desensitization of sex. Uh, people have a lot of partners, you know, pornography is available, billboards, it shows it everywhere. It's on commercials and a lot of studies they're doing now with kids, teens in school, find out that they're doing all these things now. Um, so it, sex has been a, it's a great desensitization. And I think that really contributes to the breakdown of relationships. It's not special anymore. Number three, this woman no doubt would be abused and being ripped off was probably common. Think of the type of man that visits a prostitute. And four, as a pariah, she would be constantly confronted with her sins. I'm building a case here. It's a cop in me. Uh, sorry. Now, add to that the input the Pharisees would have, the religious leaders would have, in determining the punishment for her crimes. So she would have very few friends, but an awful lot of enemies. Notwithstanding, here she enters a Pharisee's home. It's pretty brave on her part, don't you think? I don't think as brazen or brash, but as humbly and begging for mercy. How far are we willing to humble ourselves and repent and root out our sins? That's the question. I'm amazed at how long people will go on hanging on to their sins. Sometimes people are stone cold busted. And instead of coming clean, they just keep lying to cover for themselves. But others say enough is enough. I want to come clean. And this is what this woman is doing here, coming clean. Now, understand that this woman is not the Mary of Bethany in John 12, 1 through 8, that we covered last Sunday. The elements of that account are completely different, and there's no evidence that that Mary, sister to Lazarus and Martha, was a grievous sinner. To the contrary, Mary of Bethany was always portrayed as doing the godly thing. And there's no evidence that this was Mary Magdalene. That's, it's like a tradition that Mary Magdalene was, the, was a prostitute. But we're going to see later that the only thing the Bible really says about her was that seven demons were cast out of her, and then she followed Jesus. We're going to, we're going to cover that in chapter 8 next week. So going on to verse 38. So there's a positioning thing here. She stands behind Jesus' feet. She's weeping. She's washing his feet with her tears and wiping them with the hair of her head. She kisses his feet and anoints them with the fragrant oil. Now... Do you see how the positioning of Jesus and this woman makes more sense, like I said before, if he's in a reclining position? Think about the impossibility if Jesus is sitting at... We covered this too with the Da Vinci Code on Easter, with the, you know, the picture of the Last Supper, how inaccurate it was. If Jesus was sitting at the table, his feet would be tucked into the table and his head would kind of be really behind his feet. So it would be almost impossible for her to perform this act on his feet when his feet are in front of him under the table. So it makes more sense that he's reclining and his feet are kind of out and she's behind him and she's crying and, and wiping his feet. So it makes more sense there. And we also saw in John 13, uh, talks about how they reclined. As far as the alabaster flask, alabaster basically, you can still see today, it's a marbleized stone that's white but marbleized with a translucency. And what they would do is they would take the fragrant oil, they would crush certain vegetation, and the oil would come out and they would contain it in these flasks and seal it to preserve the oil. So this is the picture. 
This woman doesn't choose to anoint Jesus' head. She chooses the lowliest part of his body, his feet. In that culture, feet were dirty, they were sweaty, and they were probably smelly from traipsing around the Middle East with open-toed sandals, with all the dust and the, you know, the hot climate. Um, his, Jesus' feet were probably very dirty. Now, why do I say this? Because we'll see later that Simon the Pharisee, who invited Jesus into his home, didn't perform one of the customary functions of foot washing. So this woman now comes to Jesus and she's crying on his feet and she's wiping with her hair. This is a major act of humility on her part. She's kissing his feet and using her hair basically as a filthy wash rag. She chose to soil her body so that her soul could be clean. The operative words here are humility and service. Something completely lost in our generation. It's not my job, man. How many times have you heard that? No matter what profession you're in, somebody will be like, it's not my job, man. It's, it's, a, it's a moniker of our generation. Let me tell you a story about it's not my job, man. A guy I knew, good friend of mine, earliest mentor, Nick Segarenko, a lot of you know him, uh, since he's, he's died and he's, he's with the Lord now. But he was a big man. He was a, over six foot tall. He was a bouncer. He was a football player. He was a weightlifter. He was a giant of a man. He was a great Christian. But on top of all that, Nick was a gentle man. And we had, for a while, we had these ride-alongs where you could take somebody, a civilian, in the police car with you. They'd sit next to you. It's like being on the show of cops. they get to see what we do. Something really bad happened, though. We'd have to leave him at a gas station and tell him to call the police station. <laughs> but anyway, Nick would come frequently. You know, we would talk about the Lord, and you know, he was a mentor to me. So he would come on the ride-alongs, and I would show him what the police do. Well, I remember I always wanted to show him something really neat. But one day we had this call. It was a first aid call. Now, the police go to these calls just to make sure somebody doesn't have a black eye or they got beat up. You know, if it's just a regular first aid call, they're sick. We just go. We let the first aid take care of them and we leave. So that was my plan to go, you know, let the first aid take care of them and leave. So I go with Nick. We get out and we get to this couple's house. They were a sick elderly couple. And they just were not in good shape physically. And there was, for some reason, there was a big bucket of water in the kitchen. And within, with all the commotion between the police and the first aider, somebody knocked the bucket over. There was a few gallons of water all over the kitchen floor. Well, the first aider's job is to tend to the sick. It wasn't their job. My job is to make sure nobody gets out of hand. It wasn't my job. All of a sudden, I see somebody on the floor on their hands and knees with a bunch of towels sopping up the water and wringing it out back into the bucket. Nick came out from behind me, found some towels. It wasn't his job, man, but he got on the floor and he sopped up that water and cleaned the kitchen for this couple. I tell you, as a Christian, that really cut me to my heart when I saw what he was doing. I had never seen a service like that before. But he was just a ride-along. It wasn't his job, man. But Nick chose humility and service ab above what his job was that day. Verse 39. It says, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself saying, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. So here we get, we get introduced to the second heart of a tale of two hearts in the story. Simon the Pharisee, religious leader extraordinaire, Mr. Perfect. Now, I got to tell you, if you meet someone who never does anything wrong, okay, and is always blaming somebody else for the problems in their life, a red flag should go up in your head. But it's interesting how Simon was probably just as embarrassed, think about it, 
He was just as embarrassed as this woman, but for different reasons. Instead of calling to mind his sins in the spirit of the moment or being happy that this woman totally changed her life around and was not doing what she was doing anymore, pretty much another homewrecker was out of the, was out of the, um, the village. Okay, he should have been happy for that. He just wanted this woman to stop carrying on in his home and go away. Come on, Jesus, just get rid of her already. Don't you know who she is? It's so embarrassing. I'm a religious leader. I'm a man of status. Can you get this woman out of here? You know, say a prayer with her and just tell her to hit the road. That was probably what this guy was thinking. A better question would be, don't you know, Simon, who Jesus is? Does everyone here know who Jesus is? Well, we all do have sin, whether we want to fess up to it or not. That's what separates us from God. And that's why there's death and suffering in the world, because of sin. But Jesus is the only one who can remove that sin. But you have to receive that gift. It's almost like if I'm going to buy a car. I'm in the market for a car. And something comes in the mail from one of the dealerships, and they say, with this coupon, you could get $1,000 off a purchase of a new car. Now... When I get that coupon in my hand, it's not even worth a penny. It's not worth the paper that it's printed on until I redeem it. You see, I have to actually go to the dealership and say, I want my $1,000 taken off that new car for it to mean anything. I have to claim that coupon. It's the same thing with salvation. Jesus already did the work. Jesus sent all those coupons in the mail to us. Free salvation. We all get to hold them. But they don't mean anything until we claim it until we receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior. But seeing this Pharisee, it must have been tough when you're elevated so high in status to see your sins. You can't see your sins in yourself as you really are. Proverbs 6.16 says, Six things the Lord hates. The seventh is an abomination. The first thing on the list is a proud look. God hates pride. The Bible says that pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before the fall. The Pharisees were so high and mighty in the world of religion, they became the Nicolaitans. What's the Nicolaitans? Well, when Jesus is writing to the, to the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2.6, he said, this I have for you, this is a plus, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans as I hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans comes from two words in the Greek, nikoa, which means to conquer, and laity, which means the common people. So these people were in the religious realm but they were conquerors over the commoners. It became a situation where the church had people, leaders in the church that were elevated so high that they didn't mix with the common folk. That's what the Nicolaitans were. And unfortunately, we saw this in the church in the Dark Ages, a lot of oppression from the church at the time. Let's go to verse 40. The parable of the two debtors. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with the tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. 
Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is classic Jesus. He uses a parable, a physical thing that they could understand to explain a spiritual truth. A denarius was a day's wage, and denarii was plural of that. One person owed a debt that took about two months to pay off, and the other about two years. Roughly 10%. Doesn't sound like a big deal, does it? Well, going back to the police field, for those people who have been in the system, locked up frequently, when they're arrested, and when there's bail, and they know they're going to the workhouse, and their freedom's going to be taken away from them, they all ask the same question to the officer. Officer. Is there a 10% option? Some of you know what that means and you're not giving it up. <laughs> but most of you probably don't. If a judge doesn't think that the person's a flight risk, he'll allow the person to pay 10% of the official bail. So an example, if there's a $2,000 bail, uh, it's impossible for most people I deal with to, make that, to pay that bail. But if the judge allows a 10% option, they can easily come up with $200 and be free for the time being. So that 10% makes a huge difference to people. Obviously, the point behind the veneer here in the story has to do with sin separating one from God than money owed to a creditor. Jesus wants Simon to really get this point about grievous sinners' gratitude in having their sins washed away. In verse 43, Simon says, I suppose the one who forgave more. You know, I'm not trying to read too much into the story, but by him saying, I suppose, his I suppose response I don't think he really wants to be enlightened to this truth. I believe his eyes are starting to be open and that he's realizing that he is part of the story, but he is fighting to keep his heart from being moved. Is that you today? If you're new to the word of God, and it's not me, it's the Bible. If I just stood up here and read scriptures, you all would be affected some way by the scripture. You know, if that's you today and the word of God is starting to pierce your heart, don't fight it. Don't fight it. If it's starting to penetrate into your heart, go with it. Let it penetrate deep into your heart. That's what God designed his word to do. His word is designed to penetrate into into your heart. And on another note, if you've been a Christian for a while and your life doesn't reflect it, come to church when you feel like it. You pray and read the Bible because you feel obligated, not because you want to. You're not fooling God. He wants your heart to turn around now and Receive him again to to build that relationship back with your father. Verse 44. So he turns to the woman and he says, you know, he, he tells Simon that he compares Simon's, I guess, hospitality to this woman's hospitality. You know, um, in our customs regarding guests coming over, you do a few things when somebody comes over to your house, right? When they knock at the door, you open the door, you give them the Christian hug. Hey, it's good to see you, brother take their coat off, you offer them a drink, right? There's just things that we do. It's part of our, our society. Sometimes I forget one or more of these, and my wife says, you lack hospitality skills. <laughs> I'm like a barbarian, but I'm not that bad. But let's look at Middle Eastern customs at the time, and even some of them today. If you were in the Middle East, if you were in that culture, and someone came to your house, what would you do? Number one, you would greet them with a kiss. Even when you see, um, you know, some documentary on something that happens in the Middle East, they still do it. They greet each other and they give that peck on each side, you know, the kiss on each side of the face. 
another thing they would do is, well, again, because of the, the situation, feet would be filthy. You or your servants would, when the guests would come to the door, they'd take off the sandal and they'd wash the feet, clean the feet. feels good to get that dirt out from in between your toes, you know, dry them up real nice, and then you can enjoy the evening. Aren't you glad we don't live in the Middle East? Uh, some people have such a problem with feet, you know, they, it really grosses them out. But the third thing you would do is you would, anoint, you would anoint that guest with oil, usually on the face, on the forehead, you know, hot, very dry. We're used to humidity in New Jersey. This is a very dry climate. The skin would crack. And when somebody would come in, you'd take a fine oil and you'd, you'd, you know, you'd rub it in your hands and you'd, you'd put it on the person's forehead and their face and it just would be soothing. The skin would drink in that oil. So these are the, these are the customs that um, pretty much people would do for each other. Now, you know, I believe that, and, and I think it's, it's um, pretty clear that Jesus might have been set up here because Simon, being a Pharisee, being a man about the community, would know these customs. No doubt he would do it for other Pharisees. But none of these things were given to Jesus. So I'm just wondering, and I could be wrong, that maybe it was another setup. You know, the Pharisees loved to trap Jesus because Jesus didn't get any of these common courtesies for a guest, not to mention the people revered him as a prophet. You would do even more for a prophet, but he didn't even get the basic courtesies for a guest. It would be equivalent to you coming to my house and ringing the doorbell, and I cut my hands and I go, door's open, let yourself in. And as you're, you're kind of walking in, and I'm not coming to greet you, I'm just kind of sitting there and I'm ignoring you. That's the kind of thing that you could kind of, you know, compare it to. But by contrast, every fiber in this woman's body and soul is moved with gratefulness into action, into doing whatever she can to show that gratefulness. But Simon has no pulse, no gratefulness, no compassion, no nothing. His heart is flatlined. There's nothing there. And Jesus may be sending a shot across the bow to Simon with his comment in verse 47, aiming that last phrase at Simon. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. On a side note, sometimes you can see this in Christianity. Some people who have come to Christ after living a life of extremely you know, grievous sins, you know, just constantly immersed in whatever, that they're extremely grateful to have their sins forgiven. And sometimes those who come to Christ without a past sometimes lack the deepness of the first group, sometimes. To whom much is forgiven, the same loves much. You know, at work we have uh, briefings. The officers come from, I come in at 2 o'clock, so I can't keep this going too long. No, I come in at 2 o'clock, and the officers coming onto the shift sit down, and the sergeant explains what happened in the last shift so that we're not blindsided by an event that we may run into. It's, you know, there's continuity through the shifts, and we call it briefings. And sometimes the sergeant will read off an address that we frequently respond to as police, whether there's drugs involved, domestics, whatever. And, some, and the guys will tur- turn to me and go, hey, Joe, maybe they need Jesus. My response is, we all need Jesus. And when I get them alone, I'm like, you need Jesus too. <laughs> but some people think because they have a job and they don't do drugs and they don't beat their wives that they're okay, you know. But it's not true. You know, we, you don't get to heaven on merit. It's just not the way it works. And some people have that fallacious attitude that I'm a good person. You know, God, God's okay with me. I'm not like that guy. And we start pointing the fingers at other people. Well, let me tell you a little story in Luke 18. Turn to Luke 18, verse 9. 
Luke chapter 18, verse 9, the Pharisee and the tax collector. And he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised other. That phrase right there is telling. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be abased, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. It's funny because Jesus says that the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. He mentioned the name of God, but his heart was not with God. He was trying to justify himself. And it just goes to show you, and I've said this before, that who are we to ever look at somebody else in another situation and judge them and think that we're better than them just because we wear nice clothes or we have a nice job or we have a good marriage. That's ridiculous. So continuing on, verse. let's go back to Luke 7. Verse 48, and he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Who can forgive sins but God alone? First John 1 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, it doesn't say them. It doesn't say the special people. It doesn't say Pastor Joe or the priest or this one or that one. It says he. The only one that can forgive sins is God alone. We can talk to each other. We can lift a brother or sister up when they're down. We can pray for a brother and sister. But the only person that can forgive sins is God. And Jesus is claiming that for himself. I had a great discussion. I used to go into the prisons quite frequently with Marty. And, um, you know, I can't go as much now because I have more responsibilities. But... Two Wednesdays ago, I had a great opportunity to go in. The guys had questions about Jehovah Witnesses. One of the guys there, we had a pretty good turnout. One of the guys was a Jehovah Witness. And their big, the big difference between them and us is that they believe that Jesus was just a man, he was a good prophet, but that he wasn't God, he wasn't divine. But the cool thing is we got into talking and, you know, I, I pretty much honed on that. We could have talked about all types of different you know, doctrines that we have and they have, but I really honed in on the deity, of, the deity of Christ. And it was really cool because he, you know, he just, it wasn't, wasn't figuring with him. But the cool thing is all the other guys were like, hey, we're glad you came in. It kind of strengthened their faith to show them that Jesus was God. And these are some of the things that we do. You know, Jesus, everything that God said that he was in the Old Testament and nobody else could take from him, Jesus took that in the New Testament. Now, I wouldn't dare do that. I wouldn't dare say I could forgive sins. I wouldn't dare say that I could do any of the things, I'm the Savior, any of that stuff that Jesus claims in the New Testament. So he either was a fraud, a liar, or he really was who he said he was, God in the flesh. And we can make things very complex by going into the Greek and the Hebrew, but it's very simple. The Bible's very simple. And that's why God looks for that childlike faith, you know. Verse 50. 
It says, then he, Jesus, said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What is faith? Well, I, I love going back to the dictionary. Very simple. Faith, a belief in something. Complete trust, reliance, confidence in something. Emphasis mine. There's a doctrine basically that says you can grow your own faith. It's up to you. And when you reach a certain level, it's like battery power. When you reach a certain level in faith, you can do miracles. But the Bible says that faith is a gift from God. God gives us a measure of faith. That faith is cultivated by the relationship with him. And he has to be the object of that faith. You can't have faith in faith itself. It just doesn't work. It's not logical. Um, you know, something has to be the object of that faith. These seats that you're sitting in, Lloyd likes to use the seat example, but I'll do a little twist with it. Raise your hand. How many of you today came in and saw me and said, before you sat down, Joe, what's the name of that seat company? What's the phone number? Do you have the architectural designs to those seats? I want to see them before I sit in them. None of you, nobody's raising their hand. Nobody asked me that. You all came in and you sat down. You have faith. You don't have faith in faith. Your faith is in the person who made that seat knew what they were doing, that they used quality material so that when you put your tush in that seat, it holds you up, right? And you don't fall on the floor. So faith, if you have to have faith, you have to have an object that the faith has to go into. You understand? Let me read Romans uh, or before I do that. A little history on what happened with this woman and this situation. Bible scholars believe the incident with this woman happened around October of A.D. 29. Just after the Feast of Tabernacles and about six months prior to the crucifixion. So many of Jesus' teachings had already been established. The word of God was established, right? I bring this up to show that the woman's saving faith was not isolated. This woman's saving faith came by hearing the word of God. Romans 10.17 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. Her Her faith was in who Jesus is and what he had the power to do in her life. So I want you to turn to Romans 5, verses 1 and 2. It says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We have peace with God. There's a ceasefire. It's kind of neat. It's like uh, when there's a ceasefire in war. All of a sudden, the shelling stops and it gets quiet and the two sides stop being at war. The Bible says that we are, we're children of, of darkness until we come into the saving faith of Jesus Christ. We are at war with God, whether we know it or not. We are at enmity with God. And even if we don't realize it, we believe things and we propagate beliefs that are against what God wants. We're, we're against him. But when we have believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, there's a ceasefire. We now have peace with God. And we have access into his throne room for prayer, the Bible tells us. So he, he's telling her that your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Your faith in who Jesus is, what he did for you. And now go in peace. All those things that you did, just wash them away. God doesn't remember them. You're clean. You get to start with a new slate. And that's for, that's for all of us. But this is a tale of two hearts. I've said it before. They're both grievous sinners. One had open sin that everyone could point the finger at. It was very easy to point the finger at her. Everybody knew she was a sinner. Whatever she was doing, the whole town knew about it. The other, a religious leader, probably had a more heinous sin 
okay, against God of pride, self-righteousness, and refusal to see self-fault. A sin that was so well hidden and embedded that only the Lord himself was able to detect it. I personally believe one of the reasons there's so much animosity in our society towards God is because of all the surreptitious representations of God. And seeing religion is sometimes all people know of God. It's like when you turn on the news and they have a religious leader, they, they try to find a, a religious leader, maybe some Christian, that just doesn't maybe speak well, and they already have the questions that they're going to nail him with. He doesn't know what they're going to ask, right? And they just get the guy tongue-tied, and I just go there and I put my hand on my head, and I'm like, oh, Lord, give this guy the words. He's not, you know, it's not making any sense. You know, the deck is stacked against us. But also, religion itself, it sets a bad example. Why would some people want to follow God by looking at so-called representatives of God? You know, we're, we, I guess we can consider ourselves evangelical. We preach the gospel. I preach the gospel every Sunday. But evangelical leaders are getting rich off their congregations. They're becoming millionaires. They have their own private jets. You know, they're probably their own personal islands. And the, the more these people get rich, there's like a, a, an inverse relationship between how rich they get and how their doctrine starts to tail because they don't want to tell people the truth. They want that money to keep coming in. The Catholic Church in the U.S. self-reported, self-reported 11,000 pedophilia cases. I have the article, which is probably a low number. Just think of one child that's, that's abused, the ripple effect it has on the community. Now multiply that by 11,000. It's staggering. And you wonder why Dan Brown, to the Da Vinci Code, has such an axe to grind against the Catholic Church, right? Let's not forget how many Islamic imams are involved in terrorist activity. They're getting locked up all the time by the feds. You know, is God mocked by religion? Well, if he is, it's not for long because the Bible says he won't be mocked. If the secular government took away tax-exempt status for religion, could you blame them? You've got a secular government that's looking at people of faith and saying, they're a bunch of hypocrites. Why should they get tax relief? They're all nuts, you know? So the picture of, of people of faith is really a, a poor picture in this country. You know, we need to do a lot to clean up our act. But the woman in this account did what was right when faced with God's word and faced with God's true representative on earth. From her actions, she seemed to display fruits of repentance and is now enjoying God's grace for eternity for the last 2,000 years. Tragically, the Pharisee was spiritually blind, so he probably never came face to face with his own grievous sins. He couldn't see God's plan for the lost, because he refused to accept or understand God's grace and thought that his status justified him. There's too many people who think that way. We can learn a lot of lessons from these two hearts that we study today. One of them is that sin is just not worth holding on to. It's not worth covering for, and it's not worth pretending that our sin doesn't exist. So only after repentance and receiving Jesus as our Lord and Savior can we truly have that peace with God, peace with ourselves and peace with our surroundings that Romans 5 speaks about. Let's pray.